A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, no, seriously, thank you for tuning in. I've got some great stuff to share with you today. It's going to be light on the politics, so I'm going to tell you right now, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not, you know, up in, up in arms about uh, Hunter Biden's plea deal being dismissed or rather uh, rejected by the judge. I'm, I'm just not, uh, I'm, I'm not feeling the political vibe so much as I came across some really solid advice from some of my favorite writers. Thought I would share that with you. Barry Brownstein leads out for us today. And it's an article that I uh, got in my email inbox over the weekend. I, I'm going to pimp Substack here for just a moment here. I, I know that, uh, sadly, as soon as I started a Substack account, Twitter and Substack they had a parting of ways, and suddenly it was a lot tougher to get your, your Substack content out there. But as far as an unfiltered writing platform, I really love the place. And what I love even more is I have found some just remarkable thinkers in fact, I need to update to the, the different pages that I recommend on, on Substack just because um, I, I, want to, I want to clue in, you know, those who read my Substack as well as, you know, uh, my listeners to uh, some of the great minds that are out there. Okay, Barry Brownstein, definitely one of those individuals. When something new comes out from him, I stop what I'm doing and I look to see what, uh, what Barry's got to say. And t- today he's sharing... One of the best pieces of life advice that you're ever going to hear, courtesy of Booker T. Washington. And it starts with a story, and it's actually a parable that Booker T. Washington shared in an 1895 speech about a ship that was lost in a saltwater seas and dangerously out of drinking water, and suddenly the ship sees another friendly vessel. So from the mast of the unfortunate vessel was seen a signal, water, water, we die of thirst. And the answer from the friendly vessel came back at once, cast down your bucket where you are. Now a second time, the signal was sent, water, send us water. And was answered, cast down your bucket where you are. A third and fourth signal for water was answered the same way, cast down your bucket where you are. Well, finally, the captain of the distressed vessel, at last heeding the injunction, cast down his bucket and it came up full of fresh, sparkling water from the mouth of the Amazon River. The lost ship had drifted into safety. Now, Barry Brownstein writes, Washington shared his parable as a lesson about race relations, but his wisdom is also a guide to our experience of life. Cast down your bucket where you are is an admonition to be more present in this moment and life. Now, he recalls, Barry recalls a story, and I remember him sharing this, a uh, uh, couple of years back about how he was out walking his daily loop with an elevation gain of 450 feet and it was a hot humid day his head was filled with thoughts about miserably felt and he says approaching the first break in the climb I uncharacteristically turned around and retreat my miserable thoughts intact but as he as he started down the hill he could hear voices call out Barry four of his neighbors waving for him to turn around and join them So present and engaging them, you know, in in conversation, he says, my thought-induced misery vanished. Just need a little motivation, right? Barry writes in her book, Wrapped 
Attention in the focused life, Winifred Gallagher offers this guidance. Who you are, what you think, feel, and do, what you love, is the sum of what you focus on. I know, when I read that, that one, that one actually kind of kicked me a little bit, like, oh, <laughs> I hope I'm focusing on good stuff and, and focusing on some positive things rather than just, ah, there's another thing that's wrong. Barry writes, it was good to be reminded that the focus of my attention, not the world, creates my experience of life. He says, does my life have any meaning? That's a question that many ponder. And today among the young, suicidal thoughts are rampant. What if we could find meaning in our lives by being present to what now offers? He says, we live only in the present, but often our attention is on the past or the future. If only I should have, they should have. How dare they? When will they? Out of thoughts beginning with what if, we spin elaborate scenarios. Polly Behrens observes in her book, Coming to Life, there's a tendency to rush ahead after what if. What if I can't? What if they won't? These what-ifs lure us and threaten us into the future, making us take thought for ourselves and drowning out the thoughts that God is having for us. He says often our attention goes to forming opinions about things that are none of our business. Or we notice a slight mistake someone makes and we get annoyed. Such mental habits mask the now. The, cast, the call to cast down your bucket doesn't get through to us. He writes, research shows that the act of remembering is a faulty recreation of the past tainted by our current thinking. Regarding the future, shifting the spotlight away from speculation and attempts to control the uncontrollable helps us embrace what is in front of us. Behrens explains what might change if we understood our source is love. The more we know that we're loved by God, the more lovingly we are seeing. The more lovingly we are seeing, the more loving we are being. That's kind of profound, actually. Now, about meaning, Behrens has this to say, meaning disappears when wanting takes over. She adds, we're just reacting to our experience and thinking of what we want, what we suppose we know is best. But then the problem isn't really meaninglessness. It's the temper tantrum, the blind rage that won't see good. In fact, Behrens offers us a simple example of presence shared by a young mother at a time before the coronavirus. The young mother says, we were sitting in Brooklyn on our front stoop, my husband, our two-year-old daughter, and I. My daughter was in her clean party dress. Amazingly, even though she had worn it to a party, it was still clean. So we thought maybe if we put her in a raincoat to eat this ice cream cone, she can keep her dress clean for one more wearing. So there she was in her raincoat in the hot sun and the ice cream was running all over the place. She was a complete mess. And it didn't matter. It was so wonderful. You know, Mark, I said to my husband, I think this is as good as it gets. Now, as Barron shared the story, she anticipated what you might be thinking. You may say, so what? No big deal. Why shouldn't she enjoy watching her daughter eat ice cream? She has no big problems to worry about. Notice your own life, Barron's cautions. We almost always think we have something more important to worry about. So we're almost never aware of the fact that at least for this one moment, everything is perfect. And then Barron's gives a long list of distracting thoughts the mother could have been having here are a few. Oh, what are the neighbors going to think of her wearing such a warm coat in August? Watch out, it's dripping. What am I doing wasting my time here when I have so much more important work to do before I go to the office tomorrow? She shouldn't have so much sugar. What are we going to have for supper? Which of us is going to fix it? Who's going to the store? Barry writes, the mother kept her focus on the now. Her thinking was not removing her from making the most of the present. 
Barron's encourages us to engage in prayer and momentarily set aside all impressions of what seems to be going on and what we think we want and what we think we are for in order to allow ourselves to be inspired. Now, he talks about when his son was five, eating cherries was not possible without making a mess. We would stop giving him cherries, fret about stained shirts, pit the cherries for him or take off his shirt and have a great time. We could, rather, do all of those things. So they chose, take off his shirt, let him have a good time. He says, a good life includes a bowl of cherries. Now, he says, as we set aside needless thinking, what seems meaningless becomes meaningful. No matter how much the world seems to be weighing us down, we can cast down our bucket where we are and find new possibilities. And as we shift the focus of our attention, so does the experience of life. Our experience of life, rather. Again, this is Barry Brownstein. Um, I'll have a link to this in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I really put that to the test, by the way, this this weekend. Traveled to Bear Lake, got to uh, hang out with uh, my, my wonderful brother and sister-in-law at their cabin there. Um, got to spend some time with uh, my, my biological mother's family. Uh, they were having a wedding, and uh, we went to the reception there. And I consciously made the decision to stop worrying about some of the things I've been worrying about And just be there in the moment and focusing on what was happening around me. And, you know, I don't want to get too syrupy here, but I'm going to tell you, I was just, I was overwhelmed at how much goodness and beauty and how many great people were right there around me. And I would have missed a portion of it. Maybe I'd have missed a lot of it if I had been more focused on, oh, yeah, but, you know... The Russians in Ukraine and the economy and, you know, the central bank digital currencies. By the way, I'll be talking about most of those things, you know, later on through the show. But being present in that moment and focusing on, well, look at all the things that are right. You know, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, long story short, about three years ago, I was able to connect not only with my biological mother, but also with my biological father. I was adopted when I was four days old. And it's a roll of the dice. When you reach out to make a connection like that, you never know how it's going to go. For some people, it just might be a chapter of their life. They're like, nope, we moved on or I've moved on. That uh, that chapter is one I don't really wish to revisit. Well, thankfully, on, on both sides of that equation, they were willing to, uh, to engage. And it has expanded my family life so beautifully. I can't tell you how grateful I am for it. Sometime I'm, I think I'm going to, I seriously have to write a book about the experience of uh, all of those meetings. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for tuning in for an opportunity to revel in wrong think, which, by the way, isn't just challenging the prevailing narratives. Uh, We will do that. I've got I've got some great information to share with you coming up here in just a few minutes. But I want to dwell on something that uh, that just really hit a nerve for me. And again, this is one of my favorite Substack writers. That would be Annie Holmquist. She has a terrific article that uh, to me just seemed very timely because there's so much serious stuff going on around us. I know I'm not the only one who feels like, wow, the stakes are really high right now. You know, in so many ways, there's a, there's a lot of chaos that's been unleashed. 
And I think a lot of it, uh, I think much of it is deliberate. Like it's it's been released for the purpose of destabilizing all the existing order in order that something new might be ushered in. But it's easy to get hyper-focused on all the stuff, all the crap that's going on, and to, to forget some of the simple things. And one of the simple things that, that I really appreciate is the simple joy of laughter. Well, Annie Holmquist has this great article about celebrating laughter, or loving laughter rather, in a world that discourages joy. And she starts out her piece by saying, look, several years ago, a friend and I were bluntly told that we laughed like unsocialized homeschoolers. What an insult, right? I mean, I guess that's probably up there. You sound vaccinated. <laughs> it's wow. Now, she says, perhaps there was something more insulting lurking beneath the surface of that comment. But she says, I'll choose to put a positive spin on it and take it as a sign that my friend and I never had our bubbling joy stifled by the institutional walls of the traditional classroom. And she says, even if my laugh is a little more hearty than those of others, I can think I think I can safely say it that say that it doesn't compare to those I heard the other day when I came across an old clip from a French TV show. She says the show brought together a handful of people with unusual laughs that sounded like everything from a screeching seagull to a, a bike horn. And the laughter that ensued was at least uh, infectious, if not side holding. Would you like me to share some of that with you? I mean, I could do, yeah, let's, let's just take a second here. All right, we'll take a second here and, and, and play a portion of, of this clip. Hopefully YouTube won't try to throw a, a commercial on it. All right. Oh. Mais c'est vrai qu'il a été hyper cool. Mais vous vous êtes déjà fait examiner. C'est quand même curieux, un rire comme ça. Okay, well, you get the idea. I'm sorry. That's it. It may seem really juvenile, but uh, let's face it. Funny laughs are, they're very infectious. Now, Annie says, I continue to chuckle about this video throughout the day, and it got me thinking about laughter, wondering why we don't do it more. After all, laughter has many health benefits, both short-term and long-term. They include stress reduction, immunity enhancement, and pain relief, just to name a few. Indeed, after laughing heartily at this video, she says, I felt tired out, but in a satisfied, happy, mood-enhancing kind of way. But author G.K. Chesterton hinted at benefits from laughter beyond health in an essay from his book, The Common Man, noting that the unfortunate fact that the tendency of recent culture has been to tolerate the smile but discourage the laugh. So she gives three reasons for this discouragement of laughter that come to mind. Number one, laughter generates connection and community. The smile is always individual and even secretive, especially if it's a little mad, Chesterton writes. While the laugh can be social and gregarious and is perhaps the one genuine surviving form of the general will. In other words, when people laugh, it almost always breaks the ice, creating a commonality and thus a bond with those who share it. It opens channels for further conversation and activity, cheering the weary or discouraged. You know, today many bemoan the isolated nature of society. She says, unfortunately, such isolation was actively encouraged just a few years ago, destroying community-building entities such as family, church, and neighborhood. That seems to be a specialty of our culture. Thus, by encouraging more laughter, we can reignite the connections our culture needs to survive in a time when many of us are increasingly isolated and depressed. 
I thought that was pretty powerful. Number two, she says, laughter encourages openness. Now, it was probably a little embarrassing for the individuals in the video to come on the show and exhibit their unusual laughs to others. Yet they forsook self-importance, they let their secret out in the open, and allowed their quirkiness to bring joy to others. Laughter does just those things. Chesterton writes, it lays itself open to criticism, it is innocent and unguarded, it has the sort of humanity which has always something of humility. Furthermore, it unfreezes pride and unwinds secrecy. And Annie Holmquist says we could use more of those traits in our world today. Sure, our culture encourages people to be open and honest. In other words, come out of the closet, speak your mind. But it simultaneously censors speech and promotes fraudulent facades through social media, propping up the self-importance of individuals through virtue signaling and airbrushed photos. She says perhaps it's time we took each other a little less seriously and made room for laughter once again in order to create true openness and honesty and a little humility too. Finally, number three. Laughter points us to the author of laughter. Chesterton writes, Laughter has something in it common with the ancient winds of faith and inspiration. It makes men forget themselves in the presence of something greater than themselves. Now, popular thinking suggests that God is austere and stern, sitting up in heaven waiting to zap us. She says, in reality, God is the author of laughter. A fact, which sh- a fact which shines through both in his word and in the unique and amusing creatures with which he filled the world. Perhaps that's exactly why we don't laugh as much today, because we don't know the source of true joy and, in fact, have done our best to stifle any references or remembrances of him. Thus, by allowing more genuine, wholesome laughter in our lives, perhaps we will open up the doors of communion and fellowship, not just with others, but with him as well. Indeed, she says, it may just be that our merry hearts are exactly the medicine that this poor, sick culture of ours needs. I thought a lot about this essay since since I received it in my inbox. Again, this is one of the, hey, I'm selling you again, this is one of the benefits of subscribing to uh, various Substack accounts. When when they do an update, you'll you'll get notified of it. It'll come right to your inbox. But when I when I thought about what she was saying, it's it's true. You know, can, can laughter be taken too far? Yes, it can. There, there comes a point, you know, if, if you're engaged in the kind of laughter where you end up like peeing your pants, okay, you may have taken things just a little too far. Sometimes there's inappropriate laughter. I've told you, you know, the worst case I can think of was getting the giggles at my dad's funeral, and I couldn't stop laughing. That was probably a nervous, emotional response to uh, all of the drama and sadness that was going on around me, but holy cow, that was embarrassing. But I love Annie's point about, you know, it encourages us to be vulnerable, but, it, but in a safe way. If people are laughing, especially if they're laughing with you, that's not such a bad thing. And frankly, I absolutely love, I adore people who have the ability to laugh at themselves. I wish I could say I could laugh at myself more. I've, I've actually, I kind of struggle with this sometimes, and, and I consider that a weakness, so it's, it's actually something I work on. But I love people who have the ability to laugh at themselves, and I will take them more seriously because they don't take themselves so seriously. They're willing to be genuine. I think that's great. And I tend to steer clear of the, the Karens out there. who There is no such, there's nothing funny going on here. Whew, that just seems like such a such a harsh way to see the world. 
And, and I'm not trying to judge them so much as just point out that given the choice between a company that's okay, that's relaxed, that has the ability to laugh versus those, no, you don't. There's no fun allowed. There is no fun allowed here. That sounds like how the woke operate to me. Nothing is funny. Everything is serious. Everything is oppression. And you should feel guilty and give me power over you. I don't want to play that game. I want to hang with the people who can see the good things that are going on around them, that can recognize that those things are good and appreciate them, and that aren't afraid to laugh and have some fun. I agree. When there's a tense situation, the person who can crack a joke and get people laughing is is like exercising a superpower of some kind. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to give a very quick shout out to the sponsors who make this program possible, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, ClimbingUpward.com, and also TMCPNation.com. If you or someone you know would like to uh, join me as a sponsor, there is a, there's a little uh, tab actually on my website. If you'd like to become a sponsor, advertise with us, just click on the link, and I will get you hooked up, my friend. All right. I've been watching with a lot of interest um, the school choice battle that's been going on. And it's, it's happening in a lot of states, and I've actually been kind of surprised to see how it is gaining traction in spite of the fact that teachers unions are very, very powerful and combined with uh, the, the stasis that comes from uh, the, the existing political order, the establishment, I don't care if we're talking Democrat, Republican, the, the existing bureaucracy is very resistant to anything that even hints at competition, like real free market competition. And so it's an uphill battle. Anytime someone wants to, to seek school choice, whether it's, you know, education savings accounts or anything like that, um, the opposition is, this is, this is robbing schools, it's robbing the poor schools, vouchers, religious interference, they just want to indoctrinate your children. That's our job. They don't say that last part, but it's kind of implied. And it's funny, too, to see some of the places where school choice has failed. Now, now in my home state of Idaho... School choice was was actually making serious gains. But there were just enough Republicans, in name only, who uh well, we we don't know. This just sounds to me like it's gonna it's gonna harm our public schools. And you know, the problem is the public schools, and, and I say this my wife is a public school teacher, and I think a phenomenal teacher. The public schools often will under deliver. I mean, they're always talking, we don't have enough money here in Idaho. That's kind of the common refrain. When are you going to fully fund these schools? Hint, it will never be fully funded, at least not to their satisfaction. We could donate 99.9% of the budget to schools, and they'd still say, it's not enough. So you have to keep some proportion here. But the problem is when you have 8th and ninth graders that are graduating, you know, with only, uh, what, 40%? What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's not efficiency, but but basically, um, oh, sorry, the word is escaping my mind. 
but that they're they're performing at the level that should be expected for their age group. 40%. Actually, it's 39, but I'm rounding up just to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's in math. That's also in reading. Competency. Thank you, whoever sent that thought. <laughs> that was the one I was looking for. That's not acceptable. It's not good. And, and again, it's not, well, we just need to do away with the schools entirely. I would like to get a separation between school and state. I think it would take the politicizing out of so many equations if parents really had the choice to, to direct their kids' education. And some parents are going to say, absolutely, I want my kid to be the wokest of the woke and to go to a school where rainbow banners are everywhere and their teachers are, you know, cross-dressers and, and you know, the whole nine yards. Fine. And if you're willing to, uh, to, to make that choice and not try to impose it on other people, hey, knock yourself out. Others would like to see their kids have a more of a religious influence within their their education which once upon a time was considered very normal i mean the bible was used as part of you know the the learning uh the the curriculum up until what about the 1940s and we started to see some separation of well we need to get the bible out of here and then it was getting prayer out of school in engel versus vital uh in 1962 and where are we today well that's a that's a topic for for another time but let's just say there's there's some pretty hinky stuff that's going on Carrie McDonald has been one of the most effective voices for school choice. And she has a great article on the Foundation for Economic Education about how this is the year of universal school choice, but there are barriers that still remain. Despite growing momentum, restrictions hinder full access to educational options. Let me share a couple of excerpts from her article. She says, Iowa made headlines earlier this year when it became the first U.S. state in 2023 to pass universal school choice legislation enabling education funding to follow all students. Utah was next, followed by four additional states, bringing to eight the total number of states with universal education choice policies enacted over the past two years. EdChoice has rightfully proclaimed that 2023 is the year of universal choice. And Carrie says this is a positive trend that will dramatically increase family accessibility to education options beyond an assigned school district. Yet, families in some states with universal choice may have many more options than those in other states. In Iowa, for example, the state's new education savings or universal education savings account, or ESA program, enables all K-12 students access to about $7,600 a year toward approved education providers. Now, more than 29,000 Iowans have applied to access these funds. Unlike similar universal ESA programs in states like Arizona and Utah, many Iowa education options are excluded, which limits supply and constrains choice. Troy Salazar, founder of Liberty uh, Liberty Self-Directed Learning Center, says, I've had a lot of families say, can we use this? Does this qualify? Now, he's, he's speaking from a micro school in West Des Moines, Iowa. And he says, unfortunately, I have to tell him, no, it doesn't, as it refers to Iowa's new ESA. A former teacher in the Iowa public schools for 22 years, Salazar opened Liberty in fall of 2022 to provide an alternative to conventional schooling. He told Kerry in a recent interview, I remember saying to colleagues and friends, why are there so many unhappy kids? It just blew my mind. There were several times in the last few years when I said, I can't do this anymore. And then in my last year, I called my wife and said, the idea of our grandkids being in this this classroom scares me. And he says, I wasn't exaggerating or being dramatic, and it was nothing that the kids were doing. 
It was the response that the kids were having to this system. They were so checked out. One day while driving in his car, Salazar was listening to a podcast that mentioned the Sudbury Valley School, a self-directed democratic school that was founded in Framingham, Massachusetts in 1968. And it continues to flourish today and has inspired the growth of dozens of Sudbury model schools around the world. Well, Salazar was hooked. I got goosebumps, he said, wondering how he had not heard of this model in all of his years working in education. So he reached out to Nick Latchin, a former public high school physics teacher, who was hoping to launch a Sudbury model school in Des Moines. Now, Kerry McDonald wrote at Forbes earlier this year, Forbes.com, how Iowa's public school or private school regulations, which long preceded any school choice policies, are among the most restrictive in the U.S., These regulations prevented Lachin from opening his school in Iowa, so instead he's leaving the state so that his children can attend another Sudbury model school. Now Salazar realized starting a private school in Iowa, especially a learner-driven one, would be difficult. So instead he launched Liberty as part of the Liberated Learners global network of drop-off, self-directed learning centers for homeschoolers. This network was co-founded by Kenneth Danford in 2013 to encourage the growth of self-directed education and provide more low-cost schooling alternatives for families. A former public school teacher, Danford created North Star Self-Directed Learning for Teens in 1996, which became the educational model for liberated learners. Now, in states like Arizona and Utah, families are able to use their ESA funds toward programs like Liberty Self-Directed Learning Center. It's low fees, around $10,000 a year for a full-time option and less for part-time options, make it highly accessible with ESA funding. But in other ESA states, including Iowa, those programs are excluded. Salazar says it's baby steps, right? I think this was a step in the right direction for our families and communities to look for education that works for their kids and their families as they see fit. He says, maybe in time we'll qualify. Until that day comes, we're just going to do our best to fundraise and make it affordable. Now, Salazar explained he has not turned away any families for an inability to pay and uses scholarships to defray tuition costs. Kerry writes, universal education choice programs open up access to many more educational possibilities for families, but those possibilities remain constrained in some states by onerous regulations and exclusions of innovative learning models. And she says, true education choice means allowing parents to make choices that are best for their children, while allowing entrepreneurial educators to create those choices. By the way, if you don't follow Kerry, um, Really, if, if you if you thought of dabbling in, in unschooling or homeschooling or one of the different educational opportunities, just school choice, for lack of a better word, you should follow her. You should at least consider what she has to say. I think she's one of the leading voices in the nation. She's up there with uh, Corey DeAngelis, uh, even Connor Boyack. I would put him up there, too. As people who are trying to create options and create alternatives to just do it. Well, I'll dump my kids off at school and uh, let the professionals do their work with them. Don't get me wrong. There are good teachers in the public schools. But if you don't have at least a little heartburn over some of the curriculum and some of the cultural rot that has crept in, you're not paying attention. It's good to have alternatives. Competition brings the best to the top like cream and we def- we desperately need some competition as it comes to schooling this 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. It's our fourth and final segment. And I've got some heavy-duty stuff to drop on you, but before I do that, uh, please, enjoy some laughter. I'm sorry, that is just pure genius. This is a French television show that uh, collected a number of people with... Shall we say interesting laughs and uh, and put them together? And oh my word, it is uh, it, it is pure magic. I don't care what kind of a day you're having. If you're having a bad day, an in between day, or just you know otherwise, you know trying to make sense of it all, this this one will put a smile on your face. Now you're probably going to have need for it when I uh, share the next couple of items with you. Uh, first off, I just want to point out that you know re- resisting the assimilation of the Borg take some really hardcore commitment. The Borg is hard at work right now to make sure that everybody's marching in lockstep and chanting in unison and obeying what uh, those above us are saying. And it's it's really crazy. I'm talking on a global scale. Well, Dr. Simon Godek has some top-notch suggestions on fortifying yourself against the Great Reset. And it's interesting. He's, he publishes this on... on uh, on Twitter, or X as it's now called, saying X isn't just a platform for dialogue, but also for solutions. So I'm going to demonstrate in this post, as the global elite are currently pushing ahead for the Great Reset or with the Great Reset, there are several precautions you can take so you don't have to bow to their plans. This is the reason I'm sharing this with you. Number one, he says, turn off your TV. Or better, throw it out your window. There's hardly anything decent on television. Mainstream media worldwide reports the same propaganda resulting in mass anxiety. By the way, he says it's been known since the 80s that television can harm mental health. In the last three years, they were shamelessly trying to make us believe that watching TV is good for you when sitting home alone due to unscientific and arbitrary lockdowns. Seems like pretty good advice. Second piece of advice, eat lots of pasture meat and feed bugs to chickens only. Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum want us to eat the bugs. A fried locust is definitely not the future of our diet, even though the media is pushing for it. Instead, we should eat as our forefathers did. Meat, shellfish, fish, roots, eggs, vegetables, and fruits. Skip the bugs, feed them to the chicken. Number three, he says, limit your sugar intake. Avoid consuming more than 8 grams of sugar per day. Sugar impacts our brain pathway similarly to addictive drugs, in some cases mirroring the effects of cocaine. Would you willingly give your children cocaine? Not likely. So why overload them with sugar? Most of us don't realize how much we consume. Human studies confirm the link between added sugar and higher inflammatory markers. So skip the sugar. Your health will thank you. Number four, he says, consume alternative and objective media and learn how to read and interpret scientific studies. This one really resonated with me, by the way. There are a lot of great alternative media sources like Telegram, Substack newsletters, thematic blogs, critical Twitter accounts, and general news like Off Guardian or TNT Radio. Also, try to learn how to read scientific studies, including their methodology, which is almost always biased. This will improve your decision-making processes. Number five, drive a robust car without many electronics. Now, this has several advantages. These kind of cars don't break that quickly. You can't be tracked. 
and the government has less control over you. Imagine buying an electric vehicle when facing an energy crisis and blackouts in particular, quite apart from the fact that the environmental footprint of the electric car is much higher than conventional cars with a combustion engine. Now, to give you an illustration of what a good, robust car is, he says, I drive a Volkswagen Beetle from 1970. That Farfagnugan, that's real. Number six, reject vaccination and CO2 passports and digital IDs. That should, uh, that should be pretty self-explanatory. Number seven, be self-sufficient regarding water, food, and electricity. Number eight, own your land and farm it. Again, it, this really shouldn't require a whole lot of explanation. Number nine, insist on your privacy. In fact, number 10 is also insist on your privacy. And he has some great suggestions for just for not only online, but also even how you go about searching up information. Number 11, pay with cash and avoid bonus programs. Number 12, consider homeschooling the kids to avoid them being brainwashed. Number 13, connect with like-minded people. Number 14, think twice before sending out messages, right? The, the NSA is, is hoovering up all of them. So if you send out some emotional message or something that could come back to haunt you, the, the rule of thumb is if you wouldn't be comfortable with this being read in a courtroom, don't send it. Number 15, take responsibility for your own health. Number 16, have more than two children. Number 17, keep expressing your opinion. 18, exercise more. Reduce your time on social media instead. Buy local foodstuffs is number 19. 20 is practice spirituality of any positive kind. 21, diversify your investments. 22, prepare for the unexpected. 23, promote community cooperation. 24, avoid unnecessary debt. 25, support independent scientists and journalists. You'll find a lot more detail if you click on the link in my show notes. I think you'll find it worth your time. Now, having said that, here's the article of the day. It's actually an audio article or a video clip from Twitter. But if you've ever asked yourself who really runs the world, you don't have to go chasing conspiracy theories to understand that this gentleman, and I have no idea who he is, he's, he's telling you something that is worth considering. Check this out. Very clear that the head of the snake is the financial system. We can argue till the end of time about who runs the world. Is it the Jesuits? Is it the reptilians? Is it the Illuminati? Is it the Freemasons? We can go on and on and on and on about this. But I don't think it is reasonable to even begin arguing about the mechanism that is used to exert this control. The mechanism is finance. The whole point of finance is to indebt, otherwise to enslave. What is a mortgage? I mean, what does that stand for? It's called, it's a death grip. So when you get a mortgage, you have a death grip held over you because you are in debt. You don't even own the house. The bank owns the house that loans you the money to buy the house unless you're fortunate enough to have all the money to buy it outright. And even then, you can be taxed by the government. And if you fail to keep up with those taxes, the government can then take it from you. The whole system is based on a financial fraud which effectively takes the power that we have and it gives it to a tiny group of individuals who are running the world through the control of finance. With the infinite supply of money that we have allowed them to take, they have literally an infinite supply of money, and with that money, and from their psychopathic point of view, they have bought everything and everyone who can be bought. So those of us who cannot be bought, because we operate on a level that goes way beyond the material, we are not rewarded for such behavior, we are punished for such behavior. And the most slovenly, disgustingly criminal, pedophilia, uh, you know, corrupt moral individuals, those are the ones that are rewarded in this system, which is upside down, 
We reward the pedophiles, we reward the corrupt, we reward the liars, we reward the people with no morals at all, and usually we compromise them under this system in terms of maybe a videotape. Maybe Barack Obama is gay. Maybe we have videotape of him having sex with another man, or perhaps uh, some other uh, acts that may be not so popular amongst many of the, of the electorate. Or maybe we have videos of uh, political leaders having sex with little boys or little girls. If I was in charge of the world and I was a psychopath and completely drunk on my own power, you can bet damn sure that's what I would do. I wouldn't allow anyone in a position of power who wasn't completely compromised. When you have an infinite supply of money, you can do this. Take that supply of money away, take that power back, put it in the hands of the people, get rid of fractional reserve banking, which is an obscenity in itself. Listen to the lessons of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian who got really pissed off when he went to the temple and he saw what the money changers were doing, let's take back control of the issuance of money. And not just on a national level. I'm happy to see in Denmark that you have your own currency. You don't have the euro. But on every country's level, they should be issuing their own currency in a transparent, non-usury-based way in which it really, truly benefits the people. And in that way, we can literally free ourselves of the banking debt, which is drowning us all, and we can stop scrambling for the crumbs from the table of these filthy rich psychopaths and live in a state of abundance just by changing this one thing. And I'm not just talking about abundance for Western nations who have an artificially inflated value with their currencies. We all in the West are guilty of having that reward while the rest of the world is sucking on it. Every nation in the world can use a sensible financial policy to liberate themselves, to have world-class education, infrastructure, everything that a healthy society would require can be had in, in the worst, most corrupt African country in any part of the world. We can all have that if we simply change that one thing. John F. Kennedy did that about six months before he was taken out. He issued United States notes as opposed to Federal Reserve notes. Okay, I got to stop it here. Unfortunately, we're, we're up against the clock, but I don't know who this guy is. I've looked. I, I can't find uh, I can't find credit to give credit where credit's due, but there's a lot to unpack there. And I would invite you, please go to my show notes. Again, this is for July 31st, 2023, the com. It's only a four-minute, 32-second clip, but there is a lot to unpack there. And considering that a central bank digital currency is in the process of being rolled out with the purpose of controlling us, you might want to consider what this gentleman is saying. Pay close attention. This is The Brian Hyde Show.